Well, good morning. And welcome for those of you that weren't in here when we got started. Uh, my name is John. I'm the pastor here. And uh, I'm just waiting to see. Your, there you are. There are your faces. That's what I wanted to see. I don't like just preaching to a dark room. No good. I want to see your faces. I'm glad you're here today. As I said, my name is John, and I'm the pastor here. And it is almost Christmas. And so we are talking, of course, about Christmas. And we are talking about the word we use is the nativity, right? You, hear, you know that word. We see that word all the time. Like we, we have nativity scenes set up. When, when I was uh, growing up, the church that my dad was a pastor of did something every year, at least for a long time, called uh, Nativity Live. And so people would come, and all around the church we had built, like, city streets, and, and um, there was an inn where people were knocking on the door and asking for, you know, to come in. And, of course, there was never any room at the inn. Um, but then you would go to the door, and you'd be like, no, really, I need, like, some hot chocolate because it's New York. <laughs> and it was always freezing during Nativity Live. But you, you actually you pulled in, and there was uh, out in a field, there were angels, people dressed up like angels with music playing. Um, and there were shepherds out in that field keeping watch over their flocks by night, and then you would come up to a Roman guard shack where they would tell you about the census that was being taken, and they would hand you a piece of paper as you went through, and then there was a busy city street um, with like a marketplace and everything, and that's where the kids always wanted to be because uh, you were close to the hot chocolate, and um, because we thought it was really fun to just run around and steal stuff, so that's what we did during Nativity Live. Um, and so you had the busy, the busy street, people going up to the inn and them telling there's no room. And then you would go around the corner and it's like all the busyness would just all of a sudden go away. And there we had a, a manger scene. We had a stable and, and the manger and some animals and that kind of thing. Um, and it was peaceful and quiet, a silent night, holy night as you went around. And then you went around past that and we gave everyone some cookies. So anyway, it was a really re- meaningful and incredible thing. And um, for years, Years, people would line up down the street. They'd have to get traffic control. I mean, miles long the line. But we think about this nativity, and we picture this scene, right, with um, Jesus laying in the manger, Mary next to him, Joseph, and shepherds, and whoever else might be at our nativity scenes. But I never really thought about it before. But this week, I was getting ready for the message, and I thought, what does that word mean? I, I've never. We just use that word. I never thought about what it meant. And then when I went and looked it up, I felt dumb uh, because it just means, it comes from the word native, okay? It's, it's the same root as the word native. And all it means is a birth story, a birth story. Not necessarily Jesus. We, use, we really only use that word when we're talking about Jesus. But everyone has a nativity. You do too. I do too. Mine was significantly less eventful than Jesus, all right? I was born uh, March 15th, 1981, in Highlands Hospital in Rochester, New York. And that's it. That's the whole entire story. There were, <laughs> there were no, no shepherds, no wise men. They didn't even come later. I don't know when the wise men showed up, but they, they didn't come then or later or anything like that. Just pretty boring. And I know some of you were like, oh, 1981. I can date him now. Okay, so he's 41 years old. I didn't, you know? Yeah. Some of you were like, wow, that's young. <laughs> and some of you were like, whoa, that's old. Right, and Jess is like, that's just right, <laughs> right. <laughs> so anyway, we all have a nativity story, and when we read in scripture, it's interesting because um, not all of the gospel writers include a nativity story. There's four gospels, and only two of them include a nativity story. 
Matthew talks about it, and Luke talks about it. But Mark makes no mention of it. He just jumps right into Jesus' ministry. And John, this, the Gospel of John is different slightly than the other three. That's why the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the Synoptic Gospels. And then you have John. It's a little different. John talks about Jesus coming into the world, but he doesn't talk about the events of the nativity. So he, he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. He says all that, but he doesn't actually give the nativity. So Luke and Matthew include this on purpose. And I think that's really important to understand. When uh, people were writing in scripture, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they also made decisions as they were writing, whether they were going to include these events or not. And Luke, which is where we typically read the Christmas story from, if you sit down with your family and you're going to read the Christmas story, usually you're going to go to Luke. Luke records all of these events on purpose. He has a reason for doing it. And he actually gives us that reason at the beginning of his gospel, before he ever gets into the nativity, in his introduction to the entire book. He gives us his purpose statement for this. Why would he talk about it? Why would he include it? Why is it important? So in Luke chapter 1, we're going to look there. We're going to be in Luke today. So if you have your Bibles and you want to go ahead and get to the book of Luke, um, head there. But in Luke chapter 1, very first thing that Luke says, he gives us, why am I writing this whole thing? Why am I writing the whole thing? He says, inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. Now let's pause for a second. What he's saying is, a lot of people have written things down about what happened with Jesus, but I have firsthand accounts. I have the right information. And so I felt like I needed to put pen to paper and write down exactly what happened. Why? And this is for a guy named Theophilus, by the way. We don't exactly know who Theophilus is. There's different theories on who he is. But it's somebody who commissioned or, or um, Luke chose to write this to. Um, and he actually wrote the book of Luke, which is the account of Jesus' life. And then he also wrote the book we call Acts. It's the Acts of the Apostles. And they're actually meant to go together. It's like two volumes of one book. And um, it's not ordered that way in, the, in our Bible, and I kind of wish it was. But we stick John in the middle of there because, well, John's the odd man out when it comes to the gospel. So they just put that in the middle. But you can finish up Luke and just roll right into Acts and not miss a beat. But, and he wrote both to this guy, Theophilus. Why, though? Why did he choose to write this? Verse 4 says, That you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So Luke writes all of this, and he chooses all the details that he's going to put into this gospel and, he, and, and, the, and the book of Acts to Theophilus. Why? So Theophilus will have confidence so that he knows what he's heard about Jesus is true. And so Luke goes about writing these gospels in a very historic way, in a meticulous and careful way, being very intentional about every single detail that goes into these gospels. And he chose to include the nativity. I actually like the way that these verses, because they're, a little, they're, they're worded a little oddly, um, but sometimes I like reading from uh, something called the message. It's uh, the message, for those of you that 
have heard of that or maybe you haven't, um, the message is not a translation of the Bible. You don't do Bible study in the message. Um, the message is Eugene Peterson, uh, who is a theologian and translator, but it was his um, paraphrase, essentially, of the Scripture. He, read this, he reads the Scripture in port, parts, and then he writes it down sort of in his own language. And there are places where the message is really beautiful and really poetic and puts things really well. All right, And he says it this way, uh, Since I have investigated all the reports in close detail, starting from the story's beginning, I decided to write it all out to you, or for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt the reliability of what you were taught. And so all of this is here so that Theophilus and so that you and so that I can have confidence that what we've heard is true. This is a historical record of the birth of Jesus. It is not a story. I know we use that term a lot. It is not fiction. It is not made up. It is not, it is not uh, exaggerated. It is, not, it is none of that. These are historical eyewitness accounts of what happened. And we can have confidence in them not only what we read, but what it means for us as well. He wants us to have confidence because Jesus' birth brings joy and points to peace. And he includes not only the details of Jesus' birth, he also includes the detail of John the Baptist's birth, which is Jesus' cousin. And um, John the Baptist, uh, he was born a bit before Jesus. And he records when John is born, John's father, Zechariah, he prophesies over John, some things that are going to happen with John, but he also speaks about the Messiah. And Zechariah says this about what Jesus, the Messiah, would do. This is Luke chapter 1, verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. To guide our feet into the way of peace. This is what Jesus can do in our life, and Luke wants us to be very confident. But not only did Luke make choices, more importantly, in the birth of Jesus, God made choices. God made intentional choices about the way this was going to happen, many of which were prophesied ahead of time. But there were no mistakes in the Christmas story. Even though it didn't go, and we talked about this last week, even though it may not have gone according to what we would think the right plan would be, God made no mistakes, and every single thing happened exactly like it was supposed to happen, and everything happened on purpose. And so when we read the nativity story, we can know that Luke made choices on what's there, and we know that God made choices on how it was all going to lay out, and there's so much that we can glean out of it. And even a story like the nativity that, frankly, I think everybody has heard... (laughs) Even if you're not a Christian, I would imagine you've heard the nativity story in one form or fashion. And for those of us that have been Christians for a long time, we've heard it a hundred times. We've heard it a thousand times. And sometimes we can suffer from uh, uh, familiarity, oversight, like we've heard something so many times that it just becomes, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it, I know this, I know this, I know this. But the events of the nativity are so deep and so significant that there is always something new for us to see and learn and appreciate and value in it. And so we always need to come to it, something so familiar, we need to always come with fresh eyes to see why God did what he did and what it means for us. His choices are significant and noteworthy. He could have done it a different way if he wanted to. 
So let's look at the actual nativity story in Luke chapter 2. So if you want to move there to Luke chapter 2. Every choice is a statement. Every choice is a message to us. All right, Luke chapter 2, starting in 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in the manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, this is, this is such a part of the, uh, the Christmas story that we're so familiar with. That for me, at times, it's lost on me how bizarre this actually is. Because think about this. God, God could have done this however he wanted to do it. So why would he send Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, right? It needed to be, he, the Messiah needed to be born in Bethlehem. That's a fulfillment of prophecy. So he'd send them to Bethlehem. But why would he send them to Bethlehem and not even have a hotel room for them? Doesn't that seem ridiculous? I, I, I don't understand, or it doesn't stand to logic that God, if the Messiah was being born, would send them to town and there wouldn't be any space for them anywhere. He's of the house and line of David. I would imagine he probably has relatives in the area. Nobody's got a bed, right? Nobody's got a futon they can stay on. They're not comfortable, but it's better than the floor, you know? What, why is this happening this way? Why would, and Mary might have been thinking these things too. Joseph might have been thinking these things too. I don't know. It doesn't tell us, but, but, but why would it be happening this way? Why would, they, why would the Savior of the world be born in a barn of all places? Isn't that the lowliest place a baby could be born? Isn't that the, the most disgust? I know our nativity scenes are really pretty, but you've been in a barn lately? It's, not, it's just not like that, right? This is, and the manger is a feed trough. It's, it's a feeding tray. For the animals. So why? Now, I think, there are, I think there are a couple of reasons that God may have made this choice. And perhaps the most obvious and most significant is for us to immediately get a picture of a Savior who is not here to dominate, domineer, uh, be powerful with riches and all of that, but that he would come in the most humble, lowly state and um, that we would see his humility in that. And so that's certainly part of it. But I think there might be another reason, a slightly less obvious reason that goes right along with that. And it has to do with what we're going to read immediately after this. There's no room for them in the end. Let's keep going in verse 8. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Now I want to pause for just one second. I always like talking about this. If you've been around, you probably know what I'm going to say already. Uh, 
This is one of my favorite things about angels, okay? Because when we think about angels, we picture big flowy white robes, long flowing hair, wings, and music, and the whole thing. And I do not, for a second, based on what we read in Scripture, think that angels look anything like that. Because anytime an angel shows up in the Bible, people are terrified, okay? They lose their minds. They fall down like they're, as if they're dead, okay? Angels are, uh, they may be beautiful. I don't know exactly what they look like. They may be beautiful, but they are powerful and intimidating. And when people stand in front of an angel, they are absolutely like, they don't know what to do. And so I think it's good. The angel said to them, do not be afraid, Okay, you know what, it's like, it's like every time an angel shows up, they're like, okay, uh, come on, you know, like, not this game, not this thing again, you know, like, it's okay, I'm a friend, you know, so uh, the angel says, do not be afraid, the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And so the the angel shows up and says, hey, the Savior has been born, and you're going to go visit him. And I have to imagine the, the shepherds who live out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night, Right. <laughs> are thinking, like, is there a king behind me? Was there, did, a, did a priest sneak up behind me? Like, you, can't, you're, you cannot be talking to me. I'm a shepherd. I live out in the fields. I'm not, I'm not a priest offering sacrifices. I'm not a governor sitting on a throne. I'm not, I'm not a powerful person like all these people who, who are so spiritual and religious. I'm a shepherd. Why would, why would he announce the birth of the Messiah to shepherds of all people? Well, I think to understand it, um, we've got to talk a little bit about shepherds. And I love talking about shepherds. They're a fascinating group of people to talk about. Now, usually when we think about shepherds, we think about... Um, we think about uh, people who are out in the field. You just think wilderness, you know, nothing around. And they're watching over their sheep. And maybe if you've ever heard anyone talk about shepherds at this time in history, there was a time in Israel's history where shepherds were noble. It was an honorable profession. I mean, uh, King David was a shepherd as a boy. Uh, Moses was a shepherd for 40 years, a third of his life. He was a shepherd. Uh, so they're, they're the, the, the fathers of the faith. They are shepherds, right? They, so that is an honorable thing for a long time. By the time we get to the time of the nativity, that has all changed. Shepherds are not considered uh, noble or honorable. A lot of people who are involved in the shepherding um, uh, trade, and that's not a trade, whatever, perfect, the whatever it is, a lot of people that are involved in shepherding um, were people who, who had sordid or difficult pasts. They were not highly regarded. We know this from documents outside of the Bible that talk about shepherds, just historical documents that talk about shepherds at the time. They were considered uh, uh, dirty, filthy. They were considered dishonest. They, um, they would have to live way, way out away from town. They were not allowed anywhere near town. Um, 
in the, uh, in the law, in fact, it said that an Israelite that was a shepherd was not a, had to be out in the wilderness, which means miles and miles away. Um, that wasn't in the written law. They had the, um, Jews had the written law, which is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible um, for us. But they also had something called the Mishnah, and the Mishnah was the oral law, which was also given to Moses. That was not written down. It was just verbally passed down, and it helped them understand how to apply um, what they read in the, in the written law. And so it was additional regulations and everything. It wasn't written down until 200-ish A.D. But we know from the Mishnah that there was a rule that said that shepherds, if you were an Israelite who was a shepherd, you had to be out in the wilderness, way out away from town. They didn't want anything to do with them. Shepherds uh, were kind of loners, right? They weren't able to, they weren't in the flow of social life. They weren't in the flow of religious life. They weren't uh, able to make the same sacrifices and all that that normal people uh, would have been in town. They weren't able to observe the feasts and festivals the way that everyone else was because of their job. And so they're very much looked at as outsiders. And usually when we talk about the nativity, these are the shepherds that we're talking about or picturing or visualizing. And obviously there's tremendous significance if the message was shared with them. However, did you know that there is an exception to that rule in the law? In the Mishnah. The exception is that if you are tending sheep that are intended to be given as sacrifice in the temple, you are allowed to keep your sheep close to town. In fact, we know that there was a sheepfold one mile outside of Bethlehem where they kept sheep intended for sacrifice. And the shepherds who kept those sheep we're not considered outsiders or low man on the totem pole or low class or anything like that. They were highly regarded by people in the society because they were responsible. There was almost a quasi-priestly role for them to watch over the sheep and prepare them for sacrifice. And they were allowed to be close to town. And there was, in this sheepfold that was about a mile outside Bethlehem, there was a tower called the Migdal Edar. And the Migdal Edar means tower of the flock. And this tower is where they would watch the sheep. They would keep watch over their flocks by night from this tower. And so there is a chance, and we don't know, but there's a chance that the shepherds that came to the nativity were not the, sh the shepherds from out of town in the middle of nowhere, but they were actually the shepherds from the, the temple flock. And if we don't know, because it doesn't say, and we can't nail that down, but it's certainly possible. They would have been closer. And if you think about the significance of that, if that is in fact true, then the shepherds left the sacrificial lambs in the field to visit the sacrificial lamb in the manger. And what a beautiful, beautiful statement that is from God to us, if that is in fact the case. Is it? I don't know. <laughs> it could be either. There's significance in both. I do wonder if, if Luke might have given us that detail, if that were true. He might, he's so detailed. I, I, I tend to think that he would have told us that if it were in fact case. But some people say, well, he said there were shepherds in the same country, which would indicate close by, not out in the wilderness. And they're keeping watch over their flocks by night. And so it's possible also that, that uh, that's a nod from him to the fact that it might be these shepherds and not the ones from out in the wilderness. Um, which is it? 
Don't know. <laughs> Don't know. But either one has incredible significance. Either one has incredible significance. The message of the angels to the shepherds, no matter who they were, was the same. Verse 13. So the angel speaks to them, and then all of a sudden there's a bunch of them. All right. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts uh, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. If it's the wilderness shepherds that get this message, I have to imagine they don't feel like there's any peace between them and God. Their, their life is fairly peaceful. They're out in the wilderness tending their flocks, fairly uneventful, except when a predator comes and they have to kill it. But otherwise, a fairly peaceful existence. But I'm sure they didn't feel peace between them and God because they weren't doing the things everyone else was doing. If it was the shepherds of the flock uh, of the temple, I think it's a different sort of thing. You know, I wonder if your job is to keep sheep that are going to be sacrificed. And those sacrifices are supposed to be an offering for sin. And you keep having sheep come through your flock and then go out and they're sacrificed and a sheep comes in and then it goes out and it's sacrificed. And you're going, you're on this hamster wheel, this revolving door. You have to start thinking. I think any reasonable person at some point starts thinking, this must not be working. Like, where does it end? Why do we have to sacrifice over and over and over and over and over and over again? And for them to be brought to the, the crib of Jesus, to the manger, and to know they're looking at the last one. I think that's highly significant. I think about the, the, the fact that it was in a stable, whether that was like a barn structure, it might have been a cave or like a basement in someone's house, that kind of thing. Why there? Well, I can't think of anywhere that a shepherd would be more comfortable or welcome. You know, if I'm a shepherd and whether, you know, whether I'm the temple shepherd or whether I'm, I'm out in the middle of the wilderness, if an angel shows up and says, I've got good, good news for you, the Savior has been born, all you have to go is go to the temple in Jerusalem and you're going to walk in and you're going to go to the Holy of Holies and then laying there on top of the Ark of the Covenant, you'll find the Messiah. We'll be like, well, I ain't going there, <laughs> you know. But where would a shepherd be completely comfortable? In a stable, in a barn. I think there's a message there from God that we need to understand that all of us are welcome. All of us are welcome. All of us, we don't need to be intimidated by Jesus. We don't need to be afraid of Jesus. We don't need to be intimidated by religious people who do all the right things and have their life all cleaned up, or at least it looks like it on the outside. We don't have to feel like we don't belong. We don't have to feel like an outcast. We don't have to feel like a reject. Every single person can come to Jesus with no barriers whatsoever and trust him for salvation. Everyone. And I think that in the way God rolls this whole thing out, he's telling us that. And he's going to tell us a lot more later. But even in the nativity, the very start, saying this is good news, peace, peace for all people. And I think also he chose shepherds because God was going to use the model and the vision of a shepherd throughout. Jesus was going to use that throughout his ministry. You know, Jesus knows the story of his own birth. 
And so I don't think it's any surprise later in his ministry when he talks about being the good shepherd. And that he shepherds and lays down his life for his sheep. So they're a tremendous model for us. And so they did it. They went. Verse 15. So it was when the angels had gone away from them to heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. I love that they were willing to go. And I think that's what we see throughout the nativity story. We see people who are willing to go. People who are willing to respond. Mary was willing to say yes. Joseph was willing to say yes. The innkeeper did not. But the shepherds (laughs) said yes. And, of course, we know the wise men, the magi, said yes. And they may have been, it's complicated about the timeline. We don't know exactly when they showed up. But they said yes, and they followed, even though they didn't know quite what they were getting into. They said yes. They were willing to go. And all of those people, everybody who was involved, when they were willing to say yes, they experienced something that was foreign to people. Peace. Peace with God. You think about before Jesus, the Israelites, the Jews, they followed the law, and they offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. It was a constant, constant keeping of the rules. And anytime you're in a system where, where you think that your, your, relate, or your uh, rightness with God is based on keeping the rules, there's never peace. There's always a question. Am I okay? Have I done enough? Have I crossed the line? And the, the message, the, 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 the joy that Jesus brought was peace, peace with God. That ultimately his sacrifice on the cross, his death in our place, the sacrificial lamb given in our place, would satisfy. And that if we put our faith in him, we trust in him for salvation, we can have peace with God. And then we go into a relationship with God, and that relationship goes up and down, and we want it to always be going up, but it goes up and down, and we grow, and we get close to him, and then sometimes we step away and and all of that. But through all of that, no matter what, we always have peace with him. We don't always feel that peace or experience that peace, and that's our fault, but we always have it. And that was found in the Savior, the Messiah, for all of us. And you can have it too. And if you spent your entire life wondering where you stand with God, all you have to do is trust Jesus for salvation instead of yourself. Believe that he died on the cross for you and he rose again on the third day and trust him for salvation and you're saved and you'll have peace with God. And you never have to question that ever again. That's a message for us. Now, they, the shepherds, went and met Jesus and saw Jesus. What did they do after that? What did they do with that? Verse 17. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. 
I kind of that word marveled is kind of a generic word. I wonder what kind of marveling that was. Was it did they believe him? Did they believe everything they said? Were they skeptical? Like, oh, here go the shepherds again, you know? Like, who are you to say this kind of stuff? Or maybe they marveled because it was the temple shepherds and it carried a lot of weight, and so they were really listening to it and discussing. I don't know. But they went, this is the point. They went and told everyone they could. They told everyone they could. No shame, no fear. Nothing. Verse 19, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. So she didn't go talking to everyone about it. But 20, then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. So when they experienced this peace, they experienced Christ. They experienced the love of God their response was to share that with everyone they could. It, it would be a travesty for us as Christians if we spent this whole season thanking God for the gift of Jesus and, and sitting in it and resting in it and thinking about the peace that we have with him and the joy that we have with him, and we didn't share that with anyone else. The, the, the shepherd's response was to go and share, go and tell Listen, you've, Christmas is, is a week away. And I know this week fundamentally isn't any different than any other week, but for our world and our society, it is. People are thinking about Jesus. They're thinking about Christmas. They're thinking about all of this. And so if we truly appreciate the peace that we have with God through Jesus Christ, then this week we should make it our mission to share that with as many people as we can. To share hope, to share peace, to share joy, whether that's if it's somebody at work, if it's that poor cashier at the store who's having to deal with everybody's foolishness, right? To share hope and joy and peace. Maybe it could be inviting someone to something, you know, whether it could be our services on Friday night, invite a friend to that, or it could be to an event of some other kind or music or whatever. But use this week. It's a tremendous opportunity for you. Not only to experience this, but to share it with everybody you can. And I think, and I know from experience, that when I'm sharing my faith with others, when I'm sharing the peace and the joy that I have with others, I end up feeling more peace and joy myself. It multiplies it. And so I want to challenge you to to do that, to think about that, and to do it with confidence. Luke said the reason he wrote this down was so that we could have confidence And know that it's true and share it, just like he did. And so I want to encourage you to do that. I want you to think about and pray about who that is, when it is, and what God wants to do through you this Christmas season. All right? Let's ask for his help now and pray and uh, make our commitments to him. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you that you did it this way. We thank you that you did it at all, that you sent your son for us. We are so thankful for him. Without Christ, we would be lost. Without Christ, we may be continuing to follow a a religious system and trying to keep up and keep all the rules and do all the things and continually falling short and experience that frustration. And we thank you that in your son, Jesus, we have peace. And so uh, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Jesus, we thank you for the ultimate gift you gave to us on the cross, your life in our place. 
And so we just, it doesn't suffice, but we want to say thank you. That we love you, we honor you, we glorify you, we magnify you. That you died, that you rose again. And in that, we know we can have peace with God, our Father. And so this season, as we think about your birth, Jesus, we, we rest in the peace that you brought. We thank you for it. And we specifically want to share it. And we know you'll lead us to exactly who we should talk to and what we should say and how it should all go down. And so we just want you to know that we trust you. We ask that you lead us through the Spirit, that you give us confidence and boldness, that we are, we are confident in what we believe and what we know. And our prayer, God, is that you would use us. You'd use us to do the same thing the shepherds did. To spread the news, the good news. And so this whole season, everything that we do, we wanted to bring honor and glory and attention and focus and worship to you. And so we offer it to you. And we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.